right, welcome to day 144 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 14, verse 24 through the end of chapter 15, and then Proverbs 12, 28 through 13, 9, and finally John chapter 14, verses 1 through 31, which is the entire chapter 14 of John. Now yesterday in the book of Samuel, we saw how uh, the Lord had given victory, um, basically following uh, the boldness of Saul's son, Jonathan, and his armor bearer, who um, basically stirred up the Philistines. Um, the Lord gave 20 of them into their hand, and then um, basically a panic ensues among the Philistines. Um, it goes real well for Israel. Even those we saw who had defected to the Philistines came back to Jonathan and Saul. And now at some point in the aftermath of this battle, the men of Israel become hard-pressed, and Saul lays an oath on his people. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies, um, and none of them taste food as a result. So basically, he's, he's attempting, apparently, to influence God, it seems, um, by a fast. So kind of this idea that we saw back with the Ark of the Covenant where if I do this thing, it will force God's hand, as opposed to uh, how we see victorious battles go, where the people recommit themselves to the Lord, they put aside their false gods, um, they inquire of the Lord, all that stuff. Saul here, under pressure, um, puts his people under this, uh, what turns out to be a very foolish oath. Um, and this, uh, and, and we saw yesterday also how... Um, he he did this thing where he um, took it upon himself to make sacrifices instead of waiting on Samuel to come, and this is seen as a as a huge violation. Um, and I noted that it could either be that he's done a priestly violation or he's done a prophetic violation. There, uh, it's not entirely clear, but that leads to his first announcement as king, his rejection as king, that the Lord is now seeking a man after His own heart. To rule over over Israel. Now here the results of this are not going to be as terrible. It's not going to be further denunciation from the Lord. Uh, he's already fallen out of favor with the Lord. He's, it's, it's only a matter of time, of course, until he's no longer king and someone else is. Um, instead, this scene seems to be functioning in the sense of showing how he lacks judgment. He has what um, P. Kyle McCarter says, calls in his commentary, uh, reckless impetuosity here. Um, it's just unwise, right? You've got men who are at battle and you're telling them to fast. And again, the only real logic that this makes is that he's somehow trying to force the Lord's hand to help him. Um, but uh, that that mindset we've already seen is kind of sideways, um, like, let me do something reckless so that the Lord must help me, um, uh, rather than doing the true things that, that make, for, um, make for God's favor. And so the people come to a forest, and there is honey on the ground, and, um, and no one dares touch it, but Jonathan, who has apparently not heard about this curse that the Lord has placed on whoever eats, um, puts out his staff, dips it in the honeycomb, and eats some of it, and it says his eyes became bright. It's unclear exactly what that um, denotes there. Um, obviously, it's a reinvigoration of sorts. 
Um, David Toshio Tsumura, in his first Samuel commentary, suggests that it might be uh, an increase in blood sugar even. Um, but uh, hard to say, but his eyes become bright and he's got energy, right? And then, but but the people then are like, hey, your, your father said, cursed be the man who eats the food this day. And, uh, you know, it tells us the, all the other people are faint. And Jonathan calls his dad out for this. He says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. But nevertheless, Israel does have a measure of victory. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and uh, the people are faint. It keeps telling us how the people are faint, right? And as a result of this time, that you know, of course, being even even more hungry because of this this curse that Saul has foolishly placed on his soldiers, they 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 take the the spoil of the Philistines, and they all start slaughtering them and eating the meat with the blood. It would seem that this is uh, now at a time when the curse is over, right? Because the people who are eating here are not denounced for that. Um, later on, only Jonathan is for what he's done. But this is an obvious problem, right? You're not to consume blood. This is very clear in the Pentateuch that that's not you're not. That's one of the main major things that you're not allowed to do. And um, and so um, they tell Saul about this, and um, Saul basically tells them uh, to have them come here and slaughter them properly. So that they're not sinning against Yahweh by eating blood. Um, so this is kind of definitely goes into the category of a rash oath. You see all the problems this makes. Like the first bad result, of course, is Jonathan inadvertently ends up breaking it. And then the second one is that his troops are so uh, hungry that they just disregard the prohibition against eating blood and um, and and sin against Yahweh by doing so. And so um, Saul uh, commands that that this be done, and he builds an altar there. Um, apparently, some of these will be used in sacrifice, um, and it, it it notes it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. This is the—and and apparently, you're kind of like, well, he's been king for quite a while already, at least two years. This is the first altar that he's now building to Yahweh? And then Saul gets the idea, let's go down after the Philistines and plunder them some more, um, you know, give them this this crushing defeat. Um, Jonathan's complained, now the Philistine defeat has not been great, let's make it great. And, um, and the priest uh, suggests that he should draw, that they should draw near to God. Um, an indication, by the way, that Saul is not acting alone. Remember how I mentioned yesterday that a lot of um, kings who are said to offer sacrifices the presumption there is probably that there are priests present. Here we see that, right? He built an altar to the Lord, and there's a priest with him. So it's not as if the king, uh, it's not as if the king is just acting alone. There are priests with him as he goes out to battle um, for the purpose of, uh, you know, ritual things that that might need to be done. And Saul inquires through him, and um, uh, doing what. It has been proper procedure, right? Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he doesn't receive an answer. And so he needs to figure out 
um, what's going on. He says, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as Yahweh lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, kind of an ironic foreshadowing, right? He doesn't know who it is yet. He shall surely die. This, you, you can't help but, I think, drawing this connection between Jephthah and his rash oath. Um, and, uh, but, and, and interestingly, too, there's a little bit of irony here, because Saul is speaking as if it's, uh, who's the fool who's done this, right? Where, in actuality, he's the one, he's the one who, uh, who's the problem here, now, not Jonathan or, or whoever else who has eaten. It, it's him for being a poor leader. Um, and so Saul sets himself apart with his son, and um, and you get a good picture here of how the Urim and the Thummim work, right? Because they're trying to single out very similar to what we saw, the other connection, of course, not only with Jephthah, but also with Achan, the story of Achan, where, where there's a violation and they need to take a, um, figure out who's done it, and so they inquire of the Lord. And so um, the, the Urim and the Thummim reveal that it is indeed Jonathan who has done this. Um, I think it's important to note here that this does not signal God's disapproval with Jonathan. I think it's better to see this as God kind of holding Saul's feet to the fire, being like, what are you going to do? You've Showing him the error of what he's done. Um, and Saul makes Jonathan fess up to what he's done. And um, Saul says, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And uh, the people say to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? So here's this dilemma, right? The Lord is clearly on Jonathan's side. He's he's given him victory um, and uh, worked this great thing by his hand. And are we just going to to kill him now because he's violated this oath that he didn't even know about, by the way. So the basically they they rescue him from Saul's hand. They rescue him from his father's hand. Um, and uh, they, it says that they ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Um, that either means that they can, the ransoming Jonathan is either uh, a shortened way of talking about how they convinced Saul to not put his son to death, or it could be, you might recall from Leviticus 5, uh, verses 4 through 13, we have a law there about um, the sin offering that is to be offered in the event of taking a rash oath. That is something we noted that Jephthah should have known about. Uh, but just to remind you, um, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good or any sort of rash oath that the people swear and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt in any of these, um, dot, 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 he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he's committed. Then it talks about the sin offering. So, um, it could be that, or it could just be them talking Saul out of it. And that's the end of it. Then we're told at the end of chapter 14 about some of Saul's additional battles that he fought while he was king over Israel. It notes Moab, it notes the Ammonites. We have already seen a battle against the Ammonite king Nachash. Um, there may be more battles against Ammonites, against Edom, against Zobah, Zobah being located to the north, and uh, against the Philistines. And... Um, and, and he gives, he, the Lord gives him a lot of victory in, in his battles. 
And uh, it says, wherever he turned, he routed them. And um, he also struck the Amalekites and delivered them out of Israel, out of the hand of those who plundered him. Uh, then we're told about Saul's family, his sons. Uh, Jonathan is not his only son. You've got Ishvi, you've got Malki Shua, you've got daughters, um, Merab and Michal. His wife is Achinoam, the daughter of Achimahaz. And uh, the commander of his army, as we noted the other day, is Abner, the son of Ner, who will continue to play a role in the narrative of Samuel even after Saul is gone. Um, and the, the, the chapter ends with this note that there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And whenever Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached himself to him. So we've seen one act of, um, of disobedience by Saul, one very foolish action by him. Now we're going to see an, another act of disobedience in chapter 15. And th in, in this one, uh, Samuel instructs um, Saul to, um, to put the Amalekites, in the name of God, he instructs them, to put the Amalekites to devote, to devote them to destruction, the ban, as we've seen with the, the indigenous Canaanites. Um, and this is this classic conflict that the people of Israel have with this group. Um, these are people who were constantly raiding and attacking them as they had escaped from Egypt, as they came up out of Egypt. And, uh, and this is, uh, they are a constant threat against Israel. And he's commanded to go to battle with them and to devote completely to destruction, all of them. And so Saul does do this. And we're told about the battle. We're told about how he dismisses uh, the Kenites, um, tells them to go and depart, um, lest I destroy you with them. He says the Kenites are a Midianite subgroup um, dwelling in the midst of Israel with a pretty good history with Israel. Um, we learn of Heber the Kenite in Judges, um, chapters 4 and 5, you might remember, who um, his wife is Yael, the one who kills Sisera for Barak, the judge there. Um, also, Moses' father-in-law is uh, apparently from these people, sometimes called Hobab, sometimes called Jethro, sometimes called Reuel. And um, so there's good relationship with them. But he goes and he does defeat the Amalekites. He does battle with them. But he keeps the king alive and he keeps the best of the sheep, oxen, fattened calves, and lambs. All that was good, he would not destroy them. And um, again, one cannot help but recall the sin of Achan when he violates the ban, the harem. So you can see where this disobedience is, right? That God tells him to do one thing and he takes it upon himself to be like, oh, but wait, you know, this stuff is really good. Let's keep this. And even giving Saul the benefit of the doubt, right? That he did want to save these animals to sacrifice them to the Lord, which is what he tells Samuel when uh, Samuel confronts him about this. Even giving him the benefit of the doubt, he still is not doing what the Lord told told him to do. Um, but it could just it could also be that some of these he's keeping for himself uh, because it's it's the best of the spoil, and that um, he's just kind of maybe telling a white lie or a half truth uh, to Sam to Samuel when he's confronted. But confronted he is. The Lord first utters to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and not performed my commandments. Um, this regret is the same uh, word that is used back in Je uh, Genesis chapter 6 to talk about God's creation of mankind when violence and sin had spread on the earth. 
Um, it's not as if God didn't know this is going to happen, but the actual experience of it of it happening causes this this deep um, uh, troubling in in the heart of God, and um, and Samuel is angry at this, and he says he cries to Yahweh all night long. Right, we've got this king, and I see it; it's already falling apart. Right, he's already disregarding you, Lord, and um, Samuel gets up early in the morning and he's told where Saul is. Saul has gone down to Gilgal, but not before um, uh, setting up a monument for himself to Carmel. So super, super uh, proud of what he's accomplished. Um, And yet he's, he's disregarded the Lord's command. Gilgal, of course, is a very important um, location. We've seen um, it mentioned a number of times. Most recently, this is where Saul has um, been made king, and this also is where the Lord first rejected him uh, because he refused to wait for Samuel. And um, and he comes to Samuel saying, I've performed the commandment of the Lord, and Samuel's reply is kind of classic. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And he confronts him over this. And as I said, um, you know, he tries to say, I save this to sacrifice to the Lord, and uh, Samuel is just like, stop talking, okay? I will tell you what Yahweh said to me this this night. Um, and he says, though you are little in your own eyes, and you are, um, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel, right? Like you don't, and that's the thing about sin, right? Um, when we when we turn from the Lord, like that's it. It's of course first and foremost an affront to God, but it's also like a belittling of ourselves. Like, am I? Um, Am I going to put that little effort into following the Lord? It, it's a matter of uh, something of, of of self-respect, something of of self-esteem that I don't I don't regard myself as faithful enough to act faithfully, and um, and uh, so you know he 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 reiterates this denunciation of Saul's kingship, and despite Saul's protestations, Samuel then. Um, says to him, and this this um, matches Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Um, was this a poem already in existence then? Probably not. This is a Psalm of David, which, if you're wondering, like, how did something Samuel said end up in a Psalm of David? That is, if we are to take the Davidic um, mention in the superscription of the Psalm, right, a Psalm of David as, as authorship, all right. Uh, what it could be is that David is aware of this and and incorporates this verse into his psalm. Could be something like that. Ultimately, it's difficult to know, um, but it is Psalm forty six through eight. Um, has has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? So even if you're intending on making sacrifices with these, what do you think God wants more? Your sacrifices or your obedience? Um, it's not belittling sacrifice. This is an essential part of Israelite religion. Samuel himself has led many sacrifices, but um, but it's it's when it is not coupled with obedience and faithfulness and listening to the voice of God. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he also has rejected you from being king. Now, this causes Saul to plead to Samuel, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I might bow before Yahweh. 
And Samuel's like, nope, not going with you because you've rejected the word of Yahweh. Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. That's the official denunciation of his king, the, the official second denunciation of Saul's kingship. Um, and Samuel says to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who this is has not yet been revealed, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Okay, so, and here the word, uh, which is the same as when he said he regretted making Saul king, I, I talked about it a few minutes minutes ago. Uh, here, it probably has the nuance change one's mind, which is, of course, uh, within the semantic range of this word. So he's not, he's just told you this thing twice. God's not going back on this. It's not like he's going to change his mind about this. For he's not a man that he should have regret or that he should change his mind, we might say. Now, Saul does attempt to show reverence to God. He he insists that he may go and bow before Yahweh. Um, and it is interesting that he calls him, that I may bow before Yahweh, your God, at the end of verse 30 there, right? It's like, whose God is it? Is he your God too, Saul? Like, why are you distancing yourself from the, the Lord like this? And um, Samuel then comes and has Agag um, brought to him, and um, Agag is all happy. Surely the bitterness of death is past, he says. And then what Samuel says kind of gives us an insight into exactly why the Lord uh, cares so much about this ongoing um, uh, strife between Israel and the Amalekites. Right? Samuel says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. So this is a this is a violent a violent group a violent people whom uh, who cannot dwell side by side with Israel, and so, so Samuel puts him to death, and it's it's actually very graphic the way it describes it. It says he he hacked him to pieces before Yahweh and Gilgal. Um, then we're told that Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. See there, probably meaning like meet or encounter rather than like physically see. Um, but he does grieve over him. And again, we're told Yahweh regretted, there's that word again, that he had made Saul king over Israel. Okay, let's go over to Proverbs. We're in the last verse actually of chapter 12, uh, where we have, as we do four times in today's Proverbs, this contrast between the righteous and essentially those who are not righteous. Um, and you have a, a beautiful example of synonymous parallelism, right? Two lines of a poetic verse saying essentially the same thing in different ways. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death, right? Very, very similar things, but kind of mixing it up a little bit. A wise son, verse uh, chapter 13, verse 1, hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. We've seen this before in Proverbs, right? That that um, if you're wise, you heed instruction and and even rebuke you heed, right? But the fool, the scoffer, um, doesn't doesn't get anything out of someone rebuking him, even though it's just the unpleasantness of the rebuke that um, catches him up, and so he doesn't hear you know, the truth that is in the rebuke. Um, then we've also got focus on speech, like we've seen before, wisdom intimately tied with speech. From the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Um, so the fruit of his mouth, right, it brings about um, uh, prosperity and being able to, um, uh, to, to enjoy what is good. 
Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, and he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Uh, we'll see other pro- uh, proverbs that involve uh, just being careless, being just in general careless with your words, right? Like always having to be one who speaks. Um, that that can often get you in trouble. Um, also, we've seen the sluggard and the diligent contrasted here. We see that again, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is re- richly supplied. Um, then verse five and six, again, uh, the righteous um, with versus the wicked, righteous hates falsehood. The wicked brings shame and disgrace. The righteous guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. Uh, then we have one of my favorite Proverbs 13, 7. One pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor yet has great wealth. This it, it definitely should be in the mix with the Proverbs view of wealth, right? What do the Proverbs say about riches? Because we've seen that like it can be a good thing. It can be some. In fact, um, the, the next verse apparently does speak to that. Um, and yet... Um, it it is there it is a thing also that um the one who appears rich can sometimes really have nothing whereas the one who you know is legitimately truly poor can actually have great wealth and of course the implication being with godliness um perhaps also with with family with friends with good re- relationships right relationships wise relationships this this proverb definitely challenges like where does true wealth really lie? Verse eight is um, a bit of a head scratcher for me. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. And um, uh, it, it could be kind of my best stab at this one is to take ransom fairly literally there. And it's basically the idea that like if if you've got wealth, then you're liable to the kinds of attacks that the poor are not. The poor hears no threat. In other words, no threats are muttered against him. That's how I would understand it. So essentially, it's like, you know, if you win the lottery, right, that people are going to be out free to get you. So you kind of keep it secret when you do it, right? Well, if you win the lottery um, and uh, or, or if you're wealthy, right, like people are going to be trying to take advantage of you through your money, whereas the poor man doesn't have to worry about such things. I That's kind of my take on what that means, but it is a bit of a confusing proverb. And finally, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Speaking of light and darkness, now let's go to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 14 today. We'll look at the whole chapter. We are now firmly in what is known as the upper room discourse. And it begins with something that uh, I won't mention names, but used, there used to be a... Um, a, a, uh, a, a guy on, on the television, he's actually still on the television, who, and I don't know if this is still kind of his, his catchphrase, but he, he, would be, he was a political commentator, is a political commentator, and he has this line, he uses this line all the time, let not your hearts be troubled. And kind of what he means is because the you know, political party that we're not exci- that excited about isn't actually as far as ahead as it might seem. That's like the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying, right? Because he says here that he's like, peace I leave with you, right? Not as the world gives do I give, right? It's it's an it's a it's a peace that's not the kind of peace that 
people of the world would take comfort in. It's a kind of peace that only comes from Christ. That's why our hearts don't have to be troubled, because of the stuff that Jesus is saying here, not because of some hope of escaping, quote-unquote, trouble in this life. Um, so, let not your hearts be troubled. And instead of your hearts being troubled, do what? Believe in God, believe also in me. Belief replaces hearts that are troubled. And he gives this assurance because, he, remember, he's he said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will not find me. But now kind of part two of that is in my house, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, that's this is where Jesus is right now, right? He's going to prepare a place for us. And then the promise, if I go to do that, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. This definitely like comes to mind when I think of this, this other biblical of other biblical sayings like, you know, no eye has seen nor 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 ear has heard. Um, nor the heart of man imagined what God has in store for those who love him, right? That where I am, you may also be. Like, we can't even fathom what that is, where Jesus with the Father is taking us to himself. Um, and he tells them, you know the way where I am going. And that is, I think, a little bit of a double meaning, right? Because the idea is like, knowing I have knowledge of the way, but I think what Jesus means here is even more so like, you know me. You have this relationship with me. So it's this, you know the way, meaning you know me, Jesus. Okay. And and um, and knowing me, in essence, is the way, because then uh, Thomas asks him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Classic John, right? That John's gospel, where people misunderstand spiritual things that Jesus says in a very woodenly manner. And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life, right? You know the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is, of course, a classic statement about what we would call like the exclusivity of Christ, the idea that Jesus is the only way to the Father, and anybody who comes to the Father must come through Jesus. Um, and then Philip says to him, um, uh, Lord, so now this is the second thing that the second thing that a disciple says that uh, sets the agenda for what Jesus is about to talk about. Uh, Philip says to him, "Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us." And Jesus essentially rebukes him for kind of having missed so much of what Jesus has already been saying in this gospel. Right? Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? There's that knowing, right? You know the way. But, and, and he's like, well, you don't know me, okay? this relational knowing, do you, um, it's not just knowing about. Um, and he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Um, how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So this is another one of these big lessons from the Gospel of John, that to see Jesus is to see the Father, that that they are one, that they are, that Jesus perfectly does the Father's will, what he speaks. He doesn't speak on his own authority, um, but the Father, as he says, dwells in me and does his works. Um, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the count of the works himself, themselves. So Jesus is like throwing a bone there, right? Like, like haven't I given you enough to, to, to believe in me? 
on, to believe that in who I am, to see who I am. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. And I think this is sometimes misunderstood, right? Because we see Jesus doing incredible things in the Gospels, walking on water, turning water into wine, raising the dead, okay? And you're like, we're going to do great. No, I think the greater works that he's talking about, like what is greater, a physical miracle or being used of God um, to awaken sinners' eyes, hearts and eyes to the gospel, to, to, to bring those who don't know the Lord to know the Lord. This verse challenges us with that. What are these greater works? And um, that's not to say that miracles don't happen, that God doesn't work miracles, but when we put a miracle up against the salvation of sinners, um, they don't really compare. And I think that is very in line with God, John's gospel about um, what is truly important, the working of signs, or is it that I, is it I've written these things that you may believe, okay? Not merely that you may see signs. Then he goes on and he says, whatever you ask in my name, and I think that's the, 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 the key here, right? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Anything you ask in my name, I will do it. Being in the name, right? It's not to mean like I've got enough faith and so whatever I ask for, Jesus is going to give me. No, the things that you ask for in his name are what he's going. That is according to his will, according to who he is, according. And even Jesus prays, right? Not my will, but yours be done, Father. I think that's important. Uh, just think of the way we, we understand this phrase, in the name of, right? When you're speaking in the name of, you're speaking as an ambassador, saying what they would say, wanting what they would want. That's what it means to do something in the name of someone. Um, next, Jesus tells us a very important thing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think this is one of those crucial bridges between faith and obedience in the Christian life. That obedience is a part of faith, um, but it it's it it comes from the life that faith generates, which is a love for Jesus, and so that's what motivates Christian obedience, right? It's not like if you want to go to heaven, better start living right because um, you know so that your good outweigh your bad. No, it the reason why obedience can be expected is a because here. We love Jesus, and therefore we keep his commandments, right? And and by the way, the reverse is also stated here in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, right? So uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you have my commandments and keep them, it's you who loves me. So do you want to know who truly loves Jesus? Look at who's following his commandments. So that's like the number one thing motivating obedience. But then we also learn here of something else that motivates our walk, gives us power uh, for living, gives us power for following God and for doing his will. And that is this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, this, of course, the spirit of truth is referring to the Holy Spirit, here called a helper. There, this is kind of a notoriously tricky word to translate. It is parakletos in Greek, uh, sometimes called the paraclete, um, and different uh, translations have been offered, like comforter, uh, would, um, 
But I think actually helper is probably one of your stronger options. Helper, there's there's a slight legal tone to this word as well. Um, like, uh, you know, one who helps you uh, before um, uh, when, when you're trying to obtain a, 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 a right verdict. Um, but a, a helper in general, too, I think is, is clearly also in view. Um, who, who dwells with you now, right? You, you already know him, but he will be in you, is what Jesus says. And then he tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So kind of circling back to this notion, I, I will come again and take you to where I am, that where I am, you may also be. Um, so you, a little while, the world will not see me, but you will see me. Um, because I live, you also will live. Um, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Notice that that close relational. You, you can't get a closer relationship than being in a person, right? Um, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This relationship, don't miss how characterized it is by love. Um, everybody who partakes in the life of God, as it were, this is a life of love. Um, and then we have the third statement by a disciple that spurs Jesus to talk about things. And this is Judas, and John clarifies it's not Iscariot, though, right, who says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world, right? Like, how is it that only your followers are going to know about you? Aren't, aren't you supposed to be the, the, the great king who is to come? And Jesus tells them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him, right? So this is the part, how will you manifest yourself to us, right? But the world, not to the world, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, Okay. And if you don't love him, you, you don't know him. You don't have the Father. The Father's love is not in you. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then he goes and he says a little bit more about the helper. So he says, I've spoken these things while I'm still with you, but after I leave, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things Um and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I think that that relates specifically to the 12 here, to the apostles, that this is the special work of the Spirit among them, that they might be his chosen witnesses, and that they would be able to relate the words and the acts of Jesus accurately to the world. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, but also here, he will teach you all things. So the Spirit also has this this teaching aspect. And I think this is just very biblical, right? That, that Christ sends his spirit um, and he's in each of each and every one of us. Um, but it is also the spirit who empowers the apostles to be the apostles. And he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And here it is again, right? With the let not your hearts be troubled. Um, not as the world gives do I give to you. Not uh, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Uh, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, right, that you're, you're about to see some stuff go down, when it does take place, that you might believe. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He knows it's going to be a dark day indeed. He has no claim on me. This is similar to what he says where I lay my life down of my own accord. No one takes it from me. Um, Rather, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he tells them, rise and let us go from here, um, which may indicate that the following words are spoken while they're walking, or it may just be, you know, he tells them this and then goes on talking for a few minutes. Unclear. Um, But yeah, so John 14, a very important chapter there. All right, well, that's it for today. Uh, As always, I thank you for being with me. And until tomorrow, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye. 